We had a, a wonderful Resurrection Sunday this morning, had a good Friday service, and here we are completing this weekend and this season with the Resurrection Sunday message. Welcome everyone. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for uh, participating with us online and, uh, and following us as, as we continue to go through the Bible. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a break out of the book of Galatians. And take you to a very, uh, well, it's a well-known story, but it's not really talked a lot about, especially during the resurrection uh, services. And this is out of Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. Now, just to kind of set things up, on Good Friday, Jesus Christ went to the cross to redeem His bride. He went to the cross to purify His bride. He died and washed her as white as snow. The Father had promised Jesus Christ a bride, and unfortunately, this bride had become defiled. And from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve Eve sinned, they became defiled, and that just led us to where we, we are today. So Jesus Christ came to make His bride holy. And then he, he, was, he was murdered. He was crucified. And during the crucifixion, there were people that had partaken of, of the crucifixion in a positive way. This morning we learned about Joseph uh, and uh, Nicodemus as well. Both of them had asked for the body of Jesus Christ to be buried in a tomb that was a borrowed tomb. And, and again, to fulfill Scripture. And one of the things that Luke does, he goes back and he shows us Scripture. He's always going back into the Bible. He does a Bible study. Jesus does the same thing. Paul, as we've been going through the book of Galatians, does the same thing. Always going back to the Scriptures. Always going back to what what they had at that time. We call it the Old Testament. They called it the Torah. That's the only Bible that they had at that time. And so the the Word of God has always been the go-to. What does God have to say about our life, about the universe, about everything that we have? And so this morning we heard and we, we, we learned that there were two people that fulfilled Scripture out of Isaiah, fulfilled Scripture. And we also learned that there were other people there as, as well, and uh, Mary, the two Marys, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. And then there were other people as well, a set of group, a group of people, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the chief priests that were asking for the grave to be guarded because... They had heard that, uh, that Jesus Christ was going to resurrect. So in order to stop this ongoing bad news or this ongoing deception is what they called it. And in order to stop that, they said, let's put some guards there in case somebody comes out in the middle of the night and tries to steal the body. And there continue the, uh, the hoax that Jesus Christ has resurrected from the dead. And uh, lo and behold, they couldn't stop Jesus from raising from the dead. So that was another set of groups. And today I'm going to talk to you about two more people. That, uh, that are in the story, and, and we'll, we'll share a little bit about them right now. Uh, Cleopas is one, and then his partner. We don't know his partner's name, but there was two of them walking on the road to Emmaus. Now, in Luke 24, and I'm going to be reading out of 13 and on, and it's a, it's a long story, it's a good story, but it's a very important story, because I, I think during the resurrection season, and probably at any time that people come to the uh, a place of worship, and they gather with people. And one of the things that most people want to do is they want to experience Jesus Christ. They want to see Him. They want to feel Him. They want to uh, hear from Him specifically. And and a lot of times people come and they says, you know, if if God really is there, if He really exists, 
then he should show himself. He should show himself to me. I want to see. I want to be able to experience. I I want what those people are experiencing. And there are times that other Christians, they they show this emotion and this feeling, and and others are looking and says, how come I can't experience that? And so we come to these gatherings, we come to conferences, and we go to places where supposedly the Holy Spirit is coming down and filling these people in order for them to experience the living God. And I think more than anything else, that experience is one of the things that we look for. Experience is what God uses. Our our heart, our passion, He uses that to draw us closer to Himself. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is more than just an experience. It's, it's what we, uh, as Christians, hold on to. The resurrection is the one thing that keeps us uh, all together united. As a matter of fact, if it wasn't for the resurrection, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says this, that if Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless. He says you are still in your sins. The resurrection is part of who we are. And if there is no resurrection, then everything that we do from, from that day forward, and all this, everything that we've been doing, is for nothing. But there is a resurrection. The resurrection took place, and that's why we celebrate on this day. The church has always understood the importance of the resurrection. Throughout history, it has met on Sundays, not on Fridays. Though Friday was the day that he was crucified, we worship on the day that he rose. And so the resurrection is the divine vindication of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. What he did, he redeemed us from a life of sin. Every person is a sinner. I am a sinner. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have come to a place where we deserve the wrath of God, this divine wrath that God is pouring out and that is being revealed right now, we all deserve this. However, because Jesus Christ wanted a pure bride, he died on the cross to cleanse her and make her his bride. And so we are in this time right now today, we're here to express that thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for what you have done. But What's this experience that people are looking for? How is it that they are, 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 are trying to find some sort of good feeling? And if anybody needed a good feeling, a good experience, something positive, it would be the disciples. Here they are, confused, full of doubt, their hopes and their dreams shattered. Nothing makes sense. The Messiah that was supposed to redeem Israel Here he is, the one that was healing and raising people from the dead. And all of a sudden, he is murdered, and he allowed himself to be murdered. Now, I believe that these disciples, they even believed, you know, he could have called 10,000 angels to help him out. Yet, as the Bible says in Isaiah, to fulfill prophecy, he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb being led to slaughter. This is who Jesus Christ was, because he was fulfilling a purpose. He was fulfilling what God had already set into place. And the greatest enemy of our life, the greatest enemy is not really the enemy, but the greatest enemy for us is the ignorance of God's Word and what it says and how it applies to our life. And it was not that they didn't believe the Scriptures. They knew that Jesus Christ was supposed to die. I mean, He talked to them about them. He even shared that with them the night before He was betrayed. And He shared with them the things that were going to take place, yet it all collapsed on them. They said, well, I'm sure that's supposed to happen, but aren't you supposed to redeem Israel first? Aren't we supposed to be this great nation? Aren't we supposed to be, uh, you know, conquering this whole world? 
And how are we going to do that now with you dead? It's the deficiency of the scriptures that causes a lot of us Christians problems. It's not that we don't believe it. It's just that we don't understand it. We don't know it. And the man without the spirit, Paul says, cannot understand the spirit, the spirit, the, the word of God. The man without the spirit doesn't understand the, the spiritual things because they are spiritually discerned. These things are foolishness. They don't make sense. They don't come into a, a, a place of understanding. And, and though we proclaim it as truth, and though we proclaim it as our living hope, though we proclaim it as the only thing that holds us together, the word of God just doesn't seem to make sense to those that don't have the spirit and they can't grasp it. But only those who understand the Bible can know the truth about salvation. Only those that understand the Bible can know the truth about sin and eternal damnation in hell and the separation from, from God for all eternity. Only those who obey biblical truth can be fulfilled and obedient and blessed and effective in joyful lives. Only those that know this truth can truly understand what God has intended for them in their life. And this is the only view, this is the only, the only way that we can actually look at Scripture and see Scripture is by understanding it through the Spirit, understanding what God has written down and delivered to us. Now, it's important to know, as I was saying earlier, that in order to experience the living Christ, we don't have to come to church, we don't have to get all worked up, we don't have to you know, come to these conferences, there, there, there's, there's that experience. And if, if God really wanted us to have that emotional, euphoric experience to be the most important thing to desire and to go after and strive after, then I believe that Jesus Christ would have shown himself to these two men in such a way. But in order to experience the living Christ, and this is in your outlines, if you have your outlines with you, open it up. And uh, well, let me read this first. Grab an outline if you don't have it. On the road to Emmaus, I'll read chapters 24, verses 13 and on. I'll lead us in a word of prayer, and then we'll come back and we'll expound on these verses. But it says this. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what thing? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he had even, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them 
in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Father in heaven, once again, we just want to come before you, before your word, and to receive from you what you have for us. Lord, help us not to add or try to interpret it for ourselves. Your word is your word, and it says what it says. Help us to see and learn and live what your word says so that we can continue to live this life in proclaiming who you are. Thank you once again. Lead us this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And later on, we're going to see that their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. So the first thing I need to do And the first thing I need to realize is in order to experience the living Christ, number one, I need to devote myself to some time with Jesus Christ. I need to devote time with Jesus. That's what I need to do, devote my time to him and and just, just hang out with him, just understand who he is. In verse 15, it says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And as they started to talk, as they were talking to them about the things that took place, they were devastated. They were heartsick. They were confused. They, they just really, their best friend just died. The savior of the world, the greatest teacher that they had ever heard from. Death has just taken him away from them. And death and resurrection form no part of their concept up to this point of the Messiah's office and, and, and the program, which he probably, why they had not really taken in what Jesus was saying about his death. It just didn't compute to them. And nothing is known much about where they were going. It's this little city called Emmaus. But Emmaus, if it's the city that most people think it is, it, it was about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And it was probably further west of Jerusalem than, than uh, other little cities. And so they were more than likely they were heading into the sunset. They were heading into the sunset and the, the sun was kind of in their eyes. And some people say, well, that's probably why they didn't recognize Jesus. I don't know about you, but if Jesus Christ would be there, I, I think I would see him or somebody that I had known before and all of a sudden, sudden came back to life. I don't care how much sun was in my eyes. I think I would be able to see them. But you see, in Galatians, it says that we need to walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful flesh or of the flesh. And walking with Christ and walking with Jesus Christ and walking in the Spirit, when you understand that there are things that the flesh desires, and as a sinful man myself, my flesh desires so much. There are a lot of things that my flesh desires, but when I'm walking in the Spirit, when I'm walking with Jesus Christ, it enables me to say no to ungodliness. It enables me to say no to unholiness. And it enables me, not that I'm 100% accurate, there are times that just my flesh just gets the best of me. And I'll say things that I shouldn't say, or I'll do things that I shouldn't do. But the, 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 the point is that when you're walking with Christ and when you're walking in the Spirit, it keeps your eyes focused on Jesus. And we need to remember that as Christians, that as someone who walks toward the sunrise, we are people that walk not toward the sunset, but toward the sunrise. And when we walk toward the sunset, we will keep our eyes off of Jesus. And, and, and in verse 14, it says that they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. And I'm sure they talked about the journey to Jerusalem. I'm sure they talked about the things that happened there. But they were more concerned about, man, I can't believe on how they, they treated Jesus Christ. I mean, what did he really do? Did he deserve that death? Did he deserve those scourgings? Did he deserve that crown of thorns? I mean, that mocking? Really? And then they put a robe on him and, and they bowed down and, and mocking him and calling him the king of the Jews. And he is the king of the Jews. But, but did he really deserve all of that? Is that something that, how did that, how, how did that all pan out? 
And they were discussing these things, and they were probably wondering what happened, and, and how did all, this all take place? And, and then in 17, 15 through 17, this is while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Take a close look at this. By not revealing himself to them until after he had explained the scriptures, Jesus modeled the principle that the power lies in the explanation of biblical truth, not in the person doing the explaining. Let me say that again. By not revealing himself to them until after he explained the scripture, Jesus modeled the principle that the power lies in the explanation of biblical truth, not in the person doing the explaining. There are a lot of times that, that as the Word of God, if you just read it and you look at it, and, and you can see the living Christ and experience His presence there. And, and what, what these men needed, at least in most of our thoughts, was an actual experience. Was Jesus there to comfort them and lift them up and help them? But was, what Jesus was more concerned about was for you and me and these men to know the scriptures, to know what the Bible says. And so good teaching always provokes questions. You always ask questions to, to, to help people find the answers. And in verses 15 and on, he says, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then in 18 and 19, the one of them named Clopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened? Are you the only one? And he, Jesus says, what things? There are things that we don't know about. There are things that are coming up. There are things that are around us. There are things that are happening even right now. And the good thing is, is that we know the person who has these things under control. Amen? So in order to experience the living Christ, number two, I need to depend on God's word. I need to depend on God's word. Look what Jesus does. And he says to them, Oh, you foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You guys have read the Torah. You guys have heard the things, and, and, and I'm sure you've understood them, but, but you just don't grasp them. Foolish doesn't mean that they were stupid or uh, you know, incapable of learning, but more it was more of an understanding of what the Bible was saying or what anybody says. There's a lot of times that we hear things and, okay, yeah, yeah, whatever, but I do whatever I want anyways. Their confusion stemmed from their failure to understand and believe everything that the New Testament says. And then in verses 26 and 27, it says, was it, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? Wasn't it not necessary? And then he goes back and he starts with Moses and the prophets, and he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning about himself. He went all the way back. He went all the way back, and I'm sure that he started off with the very first Proclamation of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after, and this is not in your outlines, after the, the fall of man, after Adam had eaten of the fruit that, a, that Eve gave him, and God came and held him to account and says, what have you done? And Adam says, the wife, the woman that you gave me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. And, and, and therefore, you know, it's not my fault. You know, it's the serpent's fault. And, and God says, well, because of all these things that you've done, you know, he's cursed the ground, he's cursed the woman. And he's cursed the man, and then he curses the snake. And he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That was the first proto evangelium 
message preached in the Old Testament. The first message, the first gospel message, talking about how he will bite the heel, kill him on the cross, but he will bruise your head in the resurrection. This is how many people had interpreted that. I'm sure Jesus told them about Abel and Noah's sacrifice, the ark, which pictures him as the true ark into which sinners enter and sail safely through the waters of divine judgment. I'm sure he talked to them about the ram offered in, in, instead of Isaac. I'm sure he talked to them about the Passover lamb like we experienced this last week. And he showed them through the Seder, every element of the Seder and how he fulfilled every single aspect of it. I'm sure he talked to them about the manna in the wilderness, uh, the, the five main offerings in Leviticus, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. I'm sure he talked to them about the Day of Atonement, where he is the picture of both the sacrifice on the altar and the scapegoat that bore away our sins. I'm sure he talked to them about the water provided in the wilderness, which pictured him as a source of spiritual provision for his people, as he told the woman at the well. If you drink from this water, you will never thirst again. And he went on and on through the prophets and through the writings and the Psalms. And when he got to the Psalms, I'm sure he focused or at least pointed toward Psalm 22 out of the many Psalms, which indicate and show what Jesus Christ had done, how he accomplished that, the prophecies about him in the Psalms. If you look with me, turn with me to Psalm 22. Very briefly, I just want to share this with you. And the moment I read the first verse, you're going to recognize it. You're going to recognize it not only as a psalm, but you're going to recognize it as something that had come out during the crucifixion. Because in verse 1 of Psalm 22, the psalmist says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How does, does that sound familiar to any of you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, I believe that not only was Jesus Christ, of course, anguished and, and, and tired and, and hurt and, and dying and, and asking God, why have you forsaken me as God turns his back on Jesus Christ? I'm sure that, that he was calling out to God as, as God was just unleashing the wrath of the whole world upon Jesus Christ. Uh, and I'm sure that Jesus felt so alone at this time. But, but I also know that there was probably a little bit more of a, a message right there. And it was, it was one of the last few sayings that Jesus Christ had. But when he said this, you have to remember that the chapters and verses in the, the, the Bible didn't actually come around until about the 1500s, the 1600s, once they started the printing press. And so for, for many times, in order to get to a portion of scripture, you would quote the first few verses. So in essence, Jesus was not only proclaiming his loneliness and, and how God has turned his back on Jesus Christ, but he's also saying, you got to look at Psalms 22. My God, you got to look at my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you look through this chapter in, in the first few verses, it says, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And if you go over to verse 6 in the same chapter, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is what the Pharisees were saying about Jesus Christ. He trusts in the Lord. Let, let the Lord save him. Let the Lord get him down from that cross. Now, in, in, and I don't know exactly how this all comes together, because I don't understand on how works providence. We talked about that this morning. 
There are things that God does in order to accomplish his purposes. One of them are miracles, supernatural things that happen that there is no understanding. There is no uh, physical or, or scientific medical explanation, like raising somebody from the dead. I, that, that's a miracle. Finding a parking spot in a crowded Christmas lot, I, I don't know. I don't think that's a miracle, but people call it a miracle. You know, hitting the lottery, somebody says, oh, I, thank God I hit the... Those aren't miracles. But God uses miracles to accomplish his purpose. Another thing that he uses are, are, is his sovereign will and how he ordains things. And he puts things into practice. And his sovereign will, as he's been placing these things into, into place, he's putting these into place so that we can see that it all lines up to Scripture. Look at verses 14. I am poured out like water. Now, this is hundreds of years prior to the crucifixion. He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breasts. My strength is dried up like a pot shared. My tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all the bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments and among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. The psalm ends in victory, as the crucifixion ends in victory as well. But it's, a, it's one of those psalms that I'm sure Jesus Christ is talking to these two men on the way to Emmaus. And as he's talking to them, he's sharing with them, these are the things that were written about me. And, and there was a lot that we don't understand. And there are a lot of things that we just can't comprehend. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 26 in your outline, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. There are, there are times that I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to say. And, and, and you know, what's, what's really interesting is God is not really listening to my words. What he's listening to is my heart. And if you ever come to a place in your life where you just don't know how to pray or what to pray, or just, just bow your heart. Just bow right there where you're at. And you focus upon God, and the Spirit will intercede. And he will tell God what it is that you need and what's going on. It's not, that's why God knows what you need ahead of time, because the Spirit himself is interceding. If you're not understanding the Scriptures, more than likely, it's because you don't have the Holy Spirit within your life. If the Holy Spirit, if the words don't make sense to you, if it's just writing, you know, I, just, I don't understand this stuff. I've tried, you know, and I just, can't, I just can't grasp it. Why? It's because the Holy Spirit's the one that's interpreting these words for you. He's the one, and you cannot have the Holy Spirit by just saying, I want the Holy Spirit. God has to place that Spirit within your life. He places it within your heart. He is the seal. And how it all adds up, he is the seal, he is the deposit. So that when Jesus Christ returns, he's all, the Holy Spirit is going to say, okay, let's go. And everybody that the Holy Spirit has, or everyone that has the Holy Spirit, will be resurrected with him. The dead in Christ first, and those of us who are alive will be caught up with him in midair. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, yeah, well, it doesn't make any sense. You know, maybe there has been a genuine conversion in your life. Maybe you have committed your life to Jesus Christ, and you recognize your sin, and, and you recognize that Jesus Christ died for your, for, your, for your sin. Yet, somehow you're having a hard time comprehending. Well, another option is, or another thing that could be happening in your life, is you're in sin. You're in sin, and you're in sin, and you're in sin, and the Holy Spirit is grieved. 
And the Holy Spirit is grieved within you. And you have squashed the Spirit. You have quenched the Spirit's fire. And, and so all this that the Spirit wants to do within your life is being squashed or quenched or, or grieved because of sin that you have not yet let go of. And the Spirit won't work in your life if you're not willing for the Holy Spirit to work in your life. If I can't even let go of the very first thing that God told me to let go of, if I can't even do the first thing that He asked me not to do, I've shared this with you before. People say, I don't understand the Word of God. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And I go, well, you understand the part where it says, don't lie? He says, yeah. Well, don't do that. It's as simple as that. The part that says, you know, uh, love your enemies? Oh, yeah. I, I, well, do that. You know, love your enemies. And, and, you know, you do those two things, just those two things. That'll keep you busy for a long time. Some people, I should say. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. The man without the Spirit does not understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness. It's dumb. It's stupid. It's like, psst. It is just dumb because the Holy Spirit does not reside in them. However, when you have the Holy Spirit in you, number three, you will have a desire for the words of Jesus Christ. This is proof text. This is proof of a regenerated heart. When you have a desire, if there is no desire for you to spend with Jesus Christ, then there is no spirit in your life. But the man with the spirit, the person with the spirit, the, the person that has been regenerated has a desire to spend time with Jesus. That's all they want to do. They desire to do so. And I, I can't hit that 100%. I, I've tried and I just can't. And that, thank God for grace. Amen. For God's grace, it always supplies the grace that I need because I cannot do that all the time. You know, the Bible says that you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with everything that you have. Every inch and every fiber of your body, soul, mind, and thought has to be concentrated upon God. And I, I, I don't do that. My mind is off somewhere else. I mean, not that they're bad things. I mean, I, I think about my wife sometimes, and I think about my grandkids, and I think about my future, things that I'm going to be doing. I think about tomorrow. I'm going to go boating or fishing or whatever the case may be. They're not necessarily bad things. But the moment I step out of line out of that one command, I have sinned. And, and this is the problem that mankind has. Sin is prevalent. I said this on Friday night. That if you've ever said a lie, anybody here ever told a lie? Okay. All right, the rest of you guys are lying. <laughs> if you've ever told a lie, the Bible says that's a sin. That's, if you've ever been mad at somebody, if you've ever been, been upset at somebody, the Bible says, Jesus said, it's just like murder. You've ever been so bad, I can just kill that guy. Well, you just did. You just committed murder. Have you ever lusted after a woman in your heart? And you ever lusted and wanted that person so bad that you can just feel it within your life? You've committed adultery. You see, a lot of people tell me, that, you know, I'm not that bad. But if you've done any one of those three things, you've already confessed to being a lying, murdering, adulterer. And with that type of sin in your life, you cannot enter heaven. You have to be perfect. And perfectness is what it is. Perfection is what it takes to get to heaven. And I don't care how much you try going to church and doing the things that you do. I don't care how much you do. I could never be perfect like that. Never. And, and, and in just those four things, not focusing everything on God, lying, stealing, mad, adultery, thoughts, that's already condemned me for life. 
However, when you have the Spirit within you, you want to know more. You desire to know Jesus Christ. Look at what these men experienced in verses 28 and 29. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he, speaking of Jesus Christ, acted as if they, that he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. They desired his companionship. They desired to be with. They desired the words. We love this Bible study, Jesus. Well, they didn't even know it was Jesus. We really like what you're saying. It just, just resonates. It makes sense. And, it, you know, and a little bit later, we'll find out that their hearts were burning. They hadn't even eaten yet. When you trust Jesus to make sense of it all, you don't want to leave his company. You don't want to leave his company. One of the reasons we gather on Sunday mornings is because, you know, it's not that the pastor has the magical words. It's not the person. It's not the messenger. It's the word. And when you gather with a a group of believers and and there's something that just resonates, it makes sense. And and, the problem is at the moment we leave here, we're separated. And when we're alone and by ourselves, that's when the enemy does his most dangerous work, his most, most harmful work when we're isolated. And do you know that this last year, that's exactly what he wanted to do, was to isolate as many people as possible? To isolate the church? To isolate believers? And we've tried to communicate through Facebook, and we've tried to communicate electronically, through letter, and through all kinds of different ways, but nothing, nothing supersedes the gathering of the saints. And for us, I mean, you know, thank God we're not a huge group. We remained open. You know, and I like to say that nothing happened, but something did happen. But you know what? We kept going anyways, and we continue to go. And there are churches now that are starting to reopen again, and praise God for that. But what the enemy wants more than anything else is to isolate and to break up. But with these men, as they experience this fellowship, this burning, this desire, spend time with us. Come on, it's, you know, okay, you're going somewhere else. That means you must have somewhere to go. But, but spend time with us. And, well, of course, he says, sure. Their hearts were on fire. The scriptures were being explained. Understanding of spiritual things started to make sense. All of a sudden, all their synapses were popping about all these stories that Jesus was telling them. And, and it made sense to them. The word of God is our anchor. The word of God is what we need all the time, every time, at all times. Nothing more, nothing less. We don't need any outside revelation. We don't need somebody else telling us what God is saying. All we need is His Word. If people are saying things that line up with His Word, I don't need it. And if it doesn't line up with God's Word, I don't want it. This is what we desire. This is where we get our strength, our nourishment, our refreshment. We are refreshed. In verse chapter 42 of Psalm, it says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, So pants my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When? When, Lord? When's when's the congregation going to come together again? When are we going to have the next church service? You see, coming to Good Friday service and sunrise service doesn't make you extra special or doesn't get you any spiritual brownie points. It didn't get us any more spiritual just by being here. But I needed to be here. I wanted to be here. I needed that fellowship and that, and that des- I desired to spend time with God's people. And as often as that happens, I want to do that. I want to do that as often as possible. I, for the life of me, don't know how many Christians can survive. 
just meeting once a week, let alone once a year. I don't know how that happens. However, I personally couldn't do it, and I know many of you couldn't either. In order, in order to experience the living Christ, number four, I need to develop time with Jesus. I just need to develop this time. When he was at the table with him, he took bread and blessed them and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. When I'm developing time with him, when I'm fellowshipping with him, when I'm conversing with him, when I'm conversing with somebody else about Jesus, talking about Jesus, talking about the things that he's done, when all that happens, it, your eyes are opened. And, and, and this, is, this is something that when we, when we talked about Seder last week, we talked about how they open up the, the, the meal. They, they open up with a glass of wine and they drink and it, it's all open. Every meal in the Jewish household is started by the breaking of bread. That's why they call it, let's break bread. And so the, the homeowner or the, the head of the household, he would pick up a loaf of bread or a piece of bread and he would break it and give thanks. And he would say, okay, meal can be served now. In essence, what this stranger did in this household that they had no idea who it was. He took it upon himself to become the head of the household, which you don't do. It's very disrespectful, as a matter of fact, in someone's home. I, I, I don't know about you, but I think I, I would get disrespected. I'd say, okay, we're going to eat now. Well, wait a minute. Not I don't care. We're all going to eat. And Jesus does it. And it's at that point, it's at that point that they recognize who Jesus Christ is. Once again, by not revealing himself to them until after he explained the scriptures, what he did is he modeled. He modeled the principle that the power lies in the explanation. It lays in the explanation of the biblical truth. The power doesn't lie in really just being there in front of Jesus and Jesus Christ filling your, your soul. That's not the principle. The principle is God's word. See, the reformers believe this. They took the word of God and they, they took it to themselves and they ate it and they drank it. And they, they believed it. It was trusted. It wasn't doubted. It was studied. It wasn't ignored. It was, it was taken as the final authority, not as one of many possibilities of things that I can do. It, it never, never seems to amaze me on how many times I've talked with people about what, what's going on. They come to me and they're telling me about things that are going on in their life. And I say, well, you know... <laughs> Literally, son, is the thing that you have to do is this is what the Bible says. The Bible says, stay away from that sin or stay away from that type of person or, you know, don't do those types of things. And it, inevitably, it always comes back and says, well, you know, Pastor, I think I need to pray about that. I, I just showed you what the Word of God says. How, how are you going to pray about what God said? He's already telling you what you need to do. All we have to do is just follow what the Bible says. And the Bible did not expressly, expressly contain all the truths. It doesn't have everything that is known on this planet. The Bible doesn't have all the knowledge that we need, but it has everything that we need to have right now. Everything that we need is here, but not everything that's out there. There is a lot of truth, and whenever you find truth, it always aligns with Scripture. Always aligns with Scripture. And so what we do is we look at the Word of God. What does God's Word say? And what was happening with these men is they experienced the living word. That is the first thing that Jesus Christ wanted to do. He wanted to make sure that they had fellowship, that they got to the word, and that they got to eat and, and converse together and, and communicate and recognize the scriptures and open it up and now to start to apply it. Like in Revelation chapter 3, this verse is used out of context in my estimation. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This verse is used for evangelistic purposes. Open your door, open the heart. And Jesus Christ is not talking to the sinner. He's not talking to the reprobate. He's talking to the redeemed. He's talking to the church. These letters in Revelation chapter 3 are to the church. And in this church, they had blocked him out. They weren't fellowshipping with Jesus anymore. They weren't breaking bread together. They weren't having that communal time together. They just weren't experiencing life together. And Jesus says, you've lost your first love. Open the door and let me in. Let me come in and have, and have supper with you. Let me come in and have fellowship with you. And usually the picture that is portrayed is a picture of Jesus standing at the door with, with his cloak and he's knocking on the door. And if you look at the door very carefully, there's no handle on the door. In essence, Jesus cannot come in, which is not the picture whatsoever. What Jesus is saying is, is repent. Because he tells them that, repent. Every church he says repent, except for two, repent. Repent and do like you did last before. In order for me to have an experience of Jesus Christ, number five, I need to discuss what I learned about Jesus. You need to discuss it. Once you come to a, a, a group, a gathering, a Bible study, church, you hear the information, you, you, you mull it around, you discuss it with one another. And, and in verse 32, it says, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened up the scriptures? Weren't those things just, just making us feel excited? I went to go have breakfast this morning with a couple that was here with us for the sunrise service. And, and they were just talking about, wow, I, I, never, I never heard that before. I never thought about it that way. I, I never really just looked at it like that. But I said, well, it's, it's right there. You know, it's not, it wasn't much of, uh, you know, it's just reading the Word of God. And I needed to discuss, and, and we discussed it, and, and it was, you know, it was talked about, and, and it, was, it was just a, a good example of how it is that we dive into God's Word, we look at it, and especially when it touches you. Now, not everything affects you in the same way. And this is why when you discuss it with somebody else, and, and I give these handouts out so you can take them home and, and read them and discuss them in Bible studies or, or just look at them. And, and if you have a question, give me a call. You'll have the, the paper with you. You can write your notes down and give me a call. Hey, what did, this, what did you mean by this? I don't, I don't quite understand that part. I get a lot of those phone calls, but it's okay. What set their hearts on fire was the understanding of the Scriptures. What set their hearts on fire was that they were so overwhelmed. They were so overwhelmed by, by just the knowledge of what... And, and they're talking about this together. Wow, you know, we, we need to get back to Jerusalem. We need to go back and tell everybody what we just experienced. And we need to go back and, and all the way back, the seven-mile journey, that in the middle of the night, they, they shot back to Jerusalem. And I'm just going to skip over to, to point number six. I need to declare the good news about Jesus Christ. I need to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, because remember, one of them already committed suicide. And those who were there with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. We witnessed it. We, we sensed it. We felt it. We know, we know it was Him. He showed Himself to us. And I'm sure they explained to Him, Yeah, you know, I don't know how it was that we missed it. And probably one of the leaders of the church is probably saying something to the effect that, Well, you know, maybe God wants us to know the Scriptures. Maybe God wants us to go back and see where he's at in all those scriptures. The, the, what Moses said, what the prophets said, what the writings say. 
And they found everybody, and they shared that experience with everyone. And they kept talking to each other. I'm sure, do you remember? When he, oh, yeah, I remember. Do you remember when he said this? Yeah, I remember. And they were talking to each other. And in verse 35, it says, Then they told what had happened on the road and how he, he, was, uh, he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And in verse 36, And as they were talking about these things, guess what happens? Now Jesus Christ shows up. Jesus stood amongst them and said to them, Man, you guys run fast. How'd you guys get here so fast? Oh, yeah. That's a newly perverted version. I'm sorry. No. Do you, do you think that Jesus got there late? Or was he there all along? Of course he was there all along. He was there all along, and he didn't reveal himself until the word was spoken. Until the gospel was shared, until the good news was proclaimed, until it was declared that Jesus Christ is risen. And how he interpreted the scriptures and how he showed them who he was by the breaking of the bread. Then he appears and then he shows himself and he says, peace to you. That's what he did. You see, there's an important principle here in the resurrection story. And it deals with the supremacy and the sufficiency of Scripture. And it deals with knowing that the Bible is all we need. And for those of you that have committed your life to Christ, for those of you that have had that regenuine, uh, the genuine conversion, for those of you that have been reborn and regenerated, for those of you that have, have come to know who Jesus Christ is, given your life to the Lord, have committed your life to Him, to serve Him, for those of you that are starting to understand what the Word says, this is all you need. And if it doesn't make any sense, all I can say is there's going to come a time when the wrath of God is going to come upon you. If you cannot understand what the Scriptures say, if you don't want anything to do with the Word of God, if you don't want anything to do with what God's people, if you don't want anything to do with what, what, what God is trying to explain to you, then the wrath of God is being revealed to you right now. And it's the truth. You see, I can say that with full confidence because I know what the Word of God says. I can say that with full confidence that, that I deserved that wrath of God. I can say that with full confidence that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and because how He has given me the faith to respond to Him, that I now stand in His presence. And the moment that I leave this earth, the moment that I die, my spirit will be in the presence of God. Until my body is resurrected, I'm united with Him. But if not, there is no second chance. The Bible is clear. Man is destined to die once and then be judged. That's it. Nobody can bray you out of purgatory or hell or wherever you're going. Once it's done, it's done. There are no second chances. The chances that you have right now are right here at this point, at this time. By responding to what Jesus Christ has done for you. We talked about this on Friday. It's hard to understand what the cross means without understanding why Jesus Christ went to the cross. You see, God is a holy God. And we talked about this on Friday and how holy He is. He, he cannot see and look upon sin. This is why He turned His back on Jesus Christ. And, and God is pure, and His eyes are pure. And so when He saw me, He saw a vile, wicked sinner. Because I had violated. You see, sin is not just, well, you know, I messed up. And we've minimized sin to the point of it's not that bad. We don't call it uh, adultery. We call it an affair. 
we don't call it, you know, murder. We call it, I was just mad. You know, we don't, we don't call it stealing. We call it, you know, I just took something that didn't belong to me. We don't call it lying. We call it a fib. And we've minimized sin. And sin is not necessarily against you or against me. Though I'm the one that's receiving or you're the one that's receiving my sinful actions. Sin is against a holy God. If you remember when David sinned against God and he sinned against Bathsheba by having an adulterous affair with her and sinned against her husband by murdering him, his first response was, Lord, against you have I sinned. When the prodigal son left and he came back and he says, I'm going to talk to God, I'm going to talk to my father and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. Your sin is against the holy God. And because God is just, he is love. But he's also just. And because he is just, he has to deal with that sin. And just like anybody that would go to court for, well, let's take the worst offense, murder. And you're there in the audience because it was your loved one that was hurt, damaged, murdered. And the, the, the defendant is, is pleading with the judge, please, Your Honor, I, I didn't mean it. I'm really, really sorry. I won't do it again. And the judge, being so compassionate and loving and caring, would say something to the effect of, well, you know, son, I, I believe you. I believe that you really didn't mean it, that you were, you're sorry, and so therefore I'm going to let you go. Case dismissed. How would you feel if that was your loved one that was hurt, that was damaged, that was murdered? You would probably say something to the effect of, what kind of a judge is that? He's got to be a corrupt judge. You see, now multiply that times infinity, that's who God is. God is a righteous judge. He's compassionate, he's loving. And we know that he's compassionate because man is sinful. We have violated and we have gone up against God every single time in our life from the moment of understanding. We have sinned and violated the code and God's commandments. And so therefore, my life is required. And God's wrath is coming. There's coming a reckoning when that day comes. And because Jesus Christ has a bride and he wants a pure bride, he says, Father, wait, hold on. Let me take care of this as we have planned. Let me do me. Just unleash your wrath upon me. Son, the only way that can happen is if you go to the cross. It's done. Because I love my church. And he goes to the cross and he endures God's holy wrath. Because just like God's love is holy, God's wrath is holy as well. It's righteous. It's just. It's equal to the punishment. But because Jesus Christ took my sin, therefore, I have been made righteous. What Jesus Christ did is he imputed, he gave, he bestowed upon me his righteousness, and my sin was imputed upon Jesus Christ at the cross. That's what he endured. Now the evidence of that imputation, that evidence of that regeneration, that evidence of that changed life, is that I have a changed life. I, from this point forward, do not run in the same circles that I ran before. Uh, Not that I've ever been perfect, and I'm not. I've just confessed that to you. But my desire is these points here. Because I want to experience Jesus Christ through the word of Christ that the Holy Spirit has put together for us. And that, my friend, is what the gospel message is. 
The gospel message is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. And over and over again, it was proclaimed. And over and over again, the people would say, well, what should we do? As Peter mentioned this at Pentecost, he says, you know, you crucified the Lord of Lords, the God who sent, was sent down here to die on the cross for you. You crucified him. What shall we do? They say, well, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Repent, meaning you change your life. You, you turn over a new leaf and not by your own willpower, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that faith gets tested all the time. It gets tested all the time. And I'm, I'm sad to say that I, I fail it. But by the grace of God, it's by His loving, compassionate grace because of what I have believed and what I've changed into and where I'm going at this point in time, I know that I know that I know that He has given me eternal life. That's the message. And these men experienced Jesus Christ and they went back and they explained that it has, it all, it has all been taken care of. And it's interesting, if you look back here, we're going to go back a little bit. It's true that the Lord has risen, verse 34, and, and 36, and uh, verse 34, and has appeared to Simon. You know, in, in that little five words, and he appeared to Simon, you know, it, it says a lot. Because if you remember, Simon is the one that denied him. Judas denied him as well. As a matter of fact, Judas betrayed him. Judas betrayed him. Simon denied him. They both sinned. But see, Judas took his life. The Bible says that Simon went out and wept bitterly. He repented. He, his life was changed. It was turned upside down. And from that point forward, every one of the disciples were looking at Peter like, I, just can't, I can't believe he did that. You denied him? Really? Three times? You know? It would have been best for Peter if he too would have just taken his own life. But Jesus had a purpose for him, a plan. And one of the things that you, don't, you may not understand is that the Gospels were written much later than you know, after this took place. Everything was given by oral tradition. And so as the writers are writing these stories, and every one of the Gospels has this uh, denial of Peter at, at, the, at the jury and, of Jesus Christ, when they arrest him and they say, aren't, aren't, weren't you with him? No. And one, and one, uh, one of the gospels says that he started to curse out the lady and started calling curses upon himself. And he said, I don't know that blankety blank man. And every one of the gospels give us uh, a story of what Jesus did. You, you know, and if I were Peter, and I'm not, but if I would have been back then and they were starting to write all these stories about what happened at the garden and, and what happened to Jesus, I probably would have went up to one of the writers and says, you know, uh, can we kind of leave that part out? Is that not really that important, is it? You, you know, I'm, I'm a better person now. You know, I, am I, you know, and uh, no. And even after it was written, I'm sure he read it. Can you guys just kind of scratch that out? I, I don't know. It's just probably me. But I, I personally believe that Peter says, no, you leave that there. You leave it there so that people can know on how great and compassionate and forgiving our God is. When you genuinely and truly repent. Peter was a loudmouth. He was a flake. He was a liar. He was just like all over the place. He was the one that cut the guy's ear off. And people say that Peter was a good, I guess he had good aim. I thought the guy had big ears, you know. How can you miss? 
Peter was the type of guy that just was, was constantly in your face. Of, oh, yeah, I do this, I do that. He was a, a boaster, a bragger. You know, I mean, you know people like that. Don't point at me. Uh, you know, they, they were just always wanting to have center stage, and it was just all about Peter. And that's the man that Jesus used to build the church and gave him the biggest and the greatest forgiveness. And, and you know, we too can have that same forgiveness if we understand that Jesus Christ did this for us. The, the resurrection is, is about, Resurrection Sunday is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross is about Jesus Christ. The, 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 the burial, all of it is about Jesus Christ. It's about Him. It's about what He's done on the cross for sinners just like us. And what He wants to accomplish. And what He wants to accomplish in Matthew, we, we talked about that this morning. He wants you to go. And the moment that you proclaim, he'll show up. He wants you to get into the word. The moment you get into the word, he shows up. But you know, it amazes me, and I don't know how true this is, but I understand that, that people have at least three or four different Bibles in their homes, and yet most Christians don't know the, the Gospels apart from the epistles. Most Christians don't know how many books are in the Old Testament, how many are in the New. Most people don't understand, uh, as one person said, do you know what the epistles are? Yeah, aren't those the apostles' wives? You know, and most people don't know their word. You can almost say just about anything and people and tell them it's in the Bible. Oh, okay. And they believe you. And it's, it's it, and I, again, I don't know how true this is, but statistics show that many Christians don't read their Bibles on a regular basis. I, I just, to me, it's just, I don't know. Our goal is to get you into the Bible as often as possible, as much as possible. I, I would expect that you would bring your Bibles, and, and if not, at least on your phones. And, and I give you verses so that you can study them, go over them, look at them, and, okay, how does this all relate to me in my life? Because that's where you're going to experience Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me ask you to stand. This morning, there was a gentleman at our sunrise service. He says, you know, the moment you asked me to stand, I felt I was back in the Catholic Church. I thought you were going to ask us to kneel. I go, no, I just wanted you to wake up because you're falling asleep. In reverence to God and to God's word and to the message, I, I, I'd like for you to, to just look at your heart. You know, some of you probably don't even care. Eh, no big deal. All right, it's okay. You know, it, it really isn't. I mean, I, I really wish that, that somehow the word of God would just penetrate that hard heart and, and just cause that change that only he can cause. I can't do it. All I can give you is the truth. You know, and some of you have made that commitment, but there's something still not right. There's something that hasn't changed. And it could be just that sin. You know, not that I don't have any sin. Every morning I have to get up and I have to thank God and, and ask him to forgive me. Because I know that I'm going to fail him. And his grace is so sufficient. It's, it's enough. His grace is enough. But I've got to recognize that. And I've got to fight and, and crucify my flesh. And you might be there. And some of you have, have grasped this and understand, you know, that I am a, a, a vile, wicked sinner saved by the grace of God. And if it wasn't for his word, every day I would be losing strength and I would be losing ground. I want to encourage you to continue on. I want to encourage you to persevere and keep going. 
But let God do his work within you. Don't fight it. Let him just do what it is that he's going to do and respond by submitting to his word. Because ultimately, Lord, that's why you went to the cross. To forgive wicked sinners like myself. To forgive us and give us the the hope of eternal life. And it's interesting, Father, we know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and when he returns, that there will be a resurrection. Some resurrected unto eternal life and others unto eternal damnation. And I pray, Father, that as I come in contact with people, I can help them to see that you desire for them to be an eternal life with them, with you. And Lord, we just pray that you take this resurrection service story and this message and help us to see the importance of your word and how it is the the most important factor of our life. This is our lifeblood. This is a lamp unto our feet, a light for our path. This is our food, our water, our manna, our bread. Lord, help us to cherish your word, to learn from your word, not deny your word. And I pray more than anything else, Father, that this Resurrection Sunday, as we focus upon what you did on the cross, as we gather with friends and family, that you are core and center in it all. Father, I pray for each individual here, that as your work in your spirit through each one, that each person responds, and that you give them the eternal life that only you can give. For those that are within the sound of my voice, for those that are hurting, for those that can't make it out for whatever reason, I lift up to you right now very special prayer requests, my sister Terry. And Lord, whatever is going on in her mind, in her heart, in her health, Father, I just pray that you lift her up, you strengthen her, you give her the ability to endure. She's been your child, and she's at a point now that she desperately needs a divine intervention. But I pray, Lord, that you keep her right there in that spot. You keep her there until your perfect will is done, either in her life, in her son's life, in her grandkids' life, or even in the life of a doctor or nurse, or whatever it is that you're doing there, Lord, give her the perseverance that she needs. So, Father, once again, as we go to your table, we remember where you took this bread of affliction. We remember where this cup of redemption came from. We remember those things, and we would do this in remembrance of you. I pray that each one is ready and willing and is able to partake today. That we examine ourselves, that we evaluate ourselves, that we recognize that those that take this in an unworthy manner have fallen asleep, have died, have gotten sick because of their unworthiness and not willing to submit to you. And I pray, God, that today we recognize that and we take this in a worthy manner. So, Father, once again, we just thank you and we bless you for this hour, this time that we have, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says... Amen and amen. Please remain standing. We have prepared what we call the Lord's Supper. For those of you that um, have partaken with us, you know that what we do is we have everybody come to the middle aisle and then just go back. We used to pass the trays around, but because of COVID, you know, uh, we're going to have to retrain people once this is all over. But for now, just go to the back and there should be some individual cups of juice that have been prepared and individual wafers that have been prepared as well. Uh, just go ahead and take one and come back to your seat. We have what's called open communion. If you have been, uh, if you committed your life to Jesus Christ and been baptized according to the scriptures, we ask you to partake, especially if you've already evaluated yourself and you, you, you feel like this is a good time to do this. 
it's amazing and it's always interesting on in how Resurrection Sunday uh, falls on the, you know, on the first Sunday so we can all take of communion together. And those of you that experienced Seder with us last week, you know that Jesus Christ had a Passover meal with his disciples. And as he was talking to the disciples, he shared with them not just any old bread. Thank you. He shared with them the bread of affliction. And if you recognize the, uh, the, if you recognize the bread of affliction in the Passover, you'll, you'll see that, um, that it wasn't just any old bread that Jesus Christ pulled out of somewhere here. This is my bread. This is my blood. It was strategically the bread of affliction. The bread of affliction, the afikomen, is in this matzah bag of three layers. And the Jewish person would reach into the middle layer, they don't know why, and they would break it, and the bigger piece, they would wrap it and hide it. And a child would go and find it and bring it back, and it was redeemed by the host, and the, the host would give them a gift. And that bread of affliction is the bread that Jesus Christ picked out and says, this is my body. They didn't understand what all that meant. And it was the cup of redemption. There was four cups that they had within Seder. The first cup to open, the cup of instruction, and the third cup of redemption. And it was that cup of redemption that they all knew what that meant, that symbolized. However, they didn't recognize, Jewish people still don't recognize that this is Jesus Christ. He took that cup, and before he passed it around, he says, this is my blood. And it wasn't until much that they realized, this is what Passover means. This is what it's all about. So I'm going to ask you to go to the center and go to the back room and pick out your communion cup and wafer. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We'll give thanks, we'll break it, and then we'll all take. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this wafer that represents the body of Jesus Christ. As Jesus pulled out the bread, of, the bread of affliction, he gave it to his disciples. And they all ate, not realizing what Jesus had just instituted. Not realizing what it all meant and how it all comes together. So today we remember what Jesus Christ did for us on this holy day of resurrection. Thank you once again, in Jesus' name. Amen.
In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, thank you for this juice and the vine that it represents and the blood. And thank you, God, for how you have initiated this, this time of remembrance where we can look back at the crucifixion and then look forward to the time that we do this and share this with you. Bless this juice and the vine that it comes from. And thank you once again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.